Hi, this is Tommy Wong, and you're listening to Examine the Scriptures, dedicated to explaining the Bible in a simple yet profound manner. Well, back in 2018, Ligonier's Ministries conducted a survey known as the State of Theology, and this survey shows what 3,000 Americans or so think about theology, such as God. Jesus Christ, the Bible, sin, eternity, marriage, gender, and so forth. The result is staggering and also interesting, but I want to pull some specific data out of it. A statement is given to people, and they are to indicate if they agree, disagree, or are unsure about the statement. So the response spectrum goes from strongly agree to strongly disagree. So statement fifteen of the state of theology,、uh, statement fifteen says the Bible is one hundred percent accurate in all that it teaches. So what was the result? Thirty-two percent strongly agree. Eighteen percent somewhat agree. Nine percent are unsure. Eighteen percent somewhat disagree. Twenty-three percent strongly disagree. Now remember, the statement says the Bible is one hundred percent accurate in all that it teaches, and the result seems interesting. You can argue that almost fifty percent, if you include the people who are unsure. Uh, you can argue that almost fifty percent may think that the Bible is not accurate in all that it teaches. What this is telling us is that these people may think that the Bible contains errors. And one of the key findings in this survey、uh, says that millennials are most likely likely to agree that the Bible is not literally true. And perhaps almost forty-five percent of millennials are most likely to agree that the Bible is not one hundred percent accurate. And here's the kicker and the surprise for you: I mentioned that the survey was given to three thousand Americans, or about around that number. But these Americans who did deserve who did the survey are evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians, or at least they call themselves evangelical Christians. And the conclusion of the survey, and I quote from the State of Theology, it says, "It this reveals deep confusion about the Bible's teaching, not only among Americans as a whole, but also among evangelicals." Now, I don't expect. The survey to necessarily be one hundred percent accurate, but we should still give that into a serious consideration. If Americans are this, if Americans, right, if the Americans have this kind of understanding of the Bible, then I would assume. Now I'm I'm a Canadian. I, I I'm from Canada. Then I would assume that Canada may be even worse in the state of theology, because I think Canada both politically. And spiritually, maybe more liberal and progressive than America.
This survey, the state of theology, reveals to us that there is an assault against the inerrancy of Scripture. Not necessarily outside the church, but inside the church. And so in today's episode, I want to speak to you about the inerrancy of Scripture. And this would build upon my previous episodes on the inspiration and authority of Scripture. And so the question that we should ask ourselves is this, are there any errors in the Bible? And so the doctrine of in the biblical of in, oh sorry the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture seeks to answer that question. Wayne Grudem explains that the inerrancy of Scripture means that the Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Let me say that again. The inerrancy of Scripture means that the Scripture in the original manuscripts does not contain or does not affirm anything. That is contrary to fact. Inerrancy literally means without error. So when I'm talking about the inerrancy of scripture, I am claiming that the scripture is free of error and without error in its original autograph. So what I'm trying to say is that the Bible always tells the truth, and that it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. And in recent years, especially during the Enlightenment er- Enlightenment era where there's scientific discovery, the scripture is somehow viewed as error or erroneous because it contradicts with science. Some have attempted to redefine the meaning of inerrancy of scripture to only mean the teachings of the Christian faith and practice. And so when scripture talks about faith in Jesus and obeying the rules and laws, only those are inerrant. However, this may mean and suggest that there are errors when the Bible speaks of things pertaining to history science, and cultural matters. Let me give you one example in recent history that challenged the inerrancy of scripture. And that is the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution challenged and attacked the notion of the creation account in Genesis. Genesis teaches us that God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh day. He created man out of the dust of the ground and woman out from his ribs. Evolution essentially teaches that, the hu- that humanity has evolved over billions of years. It began as a small matter, and eventually this small matter evolved into a fish, and this fish evolved into some a, rep- a reptilian creature, and this creature evolved into an ape or chimpanzee or some form of nature, and eventually evolved into a human. If evolution is true and fact, then we might need to say that Genesis has errors, that Genesis has errors in regards to the creation of the world. Or if evolution is true and fact, then evangelicals would need to reinterpret the Genesis account. And this position has been known as the theistic evolution, meaning that God could have used evolution as an instrument for creating the world. And this position states that we shouldn't take the days in Genesis 1 to be literal 24-hour days. Rather, we are to interpret Genesis 1 as poetic and not literal. We are to interpret the days to mean something that happens that happened for a long, 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 long time. And this position also states that there wasn't a historical Adam and Eve. They're symbols of humanity as a whole. Now, let me just be upfront with you and tell you that I am not against science. In fact, Science shows me the beauty of God's creation. 
science tells me the complexity of the hu- human body. And I, I'll, I, like I said, I'm not against science. And I also tell you, I'm not a scientist, but I love science and I affirm science. But I would contend that evolution is not true and it's not fact. It is still a theory that is yet to be proven with solid evidence. By saying this, I am not a science denier, but rather I'm skeptical of both scientific I'm skeptical of evolution both scientifically and philosophically. And there are some scientists, very renowned scientists, famous scientists who don't believe in the theory, theory of evolution, such as David Berlinsky. And by the way, he's not a Christian. He's I think he's a I think he's an agnostic, but he still doubts and questions and skeptical of the theory of evolution. And Christians who take the position of theistic evolution is, I think, heading towards a theological disaster. Because reinterpreting the Genesis account opens a can of worms because other parts of scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament alludes to and makes references to the Genesis account. If Adam and Eve were not historical, then you would have to question why Jesus refers to the creation account when talking about marriage in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus actually took the creation account to be historical. You either have to say Jesus was wrong or admit that your interpretation is wrong and inconsistent. If Adam and Eve weren't historical, then we should bring into question the issue of the original of the origin of sin. Where does sin come from? Why is there such thing as death? Why did Jesus need to die on the cross for our sins? And acknowledging and believing in the historical Adam would provide complete answers to those questions. And also, like, why does Paul would why would Paul use, you know, in Romans chapter five to mention Adam to be the first Adam and Jesus as the second Adam? It's because it is to illustrate the fact that Adam has sinned and that Jesus, as the second Adam, he came to give life. Just as Adam sinned and brought death to everyone, so Jesus, the second Adam, he came to bring life to people who believe in him. And progressive liberal Christians may not have a problem affirming the inspiration of scripture and that it is God's word. However, when it comes to inerrancy, they deny it. They deny inerrancy of scripture. The Bible contains errors on certain issues, such as homosexuality, miracles, and that the Bible and its message is offensive to the culture. And so you need to you know, water down the message or even somehow scrap those passages for the sake of being relevant to the culture. And this is a really a big theological disaster and it can have tremendous impact to a person's faith. So there are reasons. And in just this brief episode, I just want to argue that there are reasons to affirm the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture. And if we are to believe that the Bible is inspired by God, and I made that argument back in my other episodes, then we must also affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. And there is a logic to it, a theological argument for it. And that is first, you know, we have to come to, we have to talk about, you know, the character and the attribute of God. So the first thing we, why we need to affirm inerrancy of Scripture is the issue of or the doctrine of the attribute and the character of God. So going back to the doctrine of inspiration, then that God ultimately, he is ultimately the author of the Bible and that he used humans as his instruments to pen down his word. 
And whatever the word says, whatever the Bible says, it reflects the character and attribute of God. And so we know that God, he does not lie or that he speaks falsely. He doesn't lie or speak falsely. And that is found in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. To deny inerrancy, sorry, to deny inerrancy would mean that God did lie and he spoke falsely in scripture. And I just want to, you know, quickly pull it out from, from my from my laptop of, of you know what this numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says. So because it's so crucial for us to understand that inerrancy is connected to God's character. So numbers chapter 23. Verse 19 says this, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And so we must affirm that, you know, that God does not lie or he speaks falsely. If we were to say that the scripture lies and speaks falsely, then we're also assuming logically that God has lied and he spoke falsely. And also regarding God's character and attribute, we, are, we must also affirm that God speaks the truth. God speaks the truth. John 17, verse 17 says, you know, Jesus speaking to the Father, he tells, he tells, he prays to the Father to sanctify his disciples in the truth. And the next thing he, Jesus says is, your word is truth. Your word is truth. To deny inerrancy would mean that God spoke partial truths or he didn't speak truth at all. And the implication of this would be, can I trust God for what he said in the Bible? Can I trust what God said in the Bible? And if we are not willing to trust the Bible, then we will not trust God. It's easy to say, you know, I trust God. You know, nowadays people say, oh yeah, I believe in God. I trust God. God is good and all those things. But here's the question. Do you trust the Bible? Do you believe the Bible? Because if you're not willing to trust the scriptures, then you're not trusting God. If you're not willing to believe what the Bible says regarding God or all the other issues in life, then we're saying we don't we don't trust God at all. And another thing we another thing I want to highlight is that about regarding the attribute and the character of God is is that God is sovereign and that He is authoritative. God is a so, He's a sovereign God and that He's authoritative. You know Isaiah chapter forty verses twelve to fourteen says, "Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand?" And marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? You see, those are rhetorical questions. And the answer to that question, to those things, those rhetorical question is no one, no one has consulted God. No, no, God has not consulted anyone. He didn't ask for wisdom from anybody. So we need to affirm that God is sovereign. He's authoritative, and to deny inerrancy would mean that would mean that our ways, 
are higher than God's ways. And we position ourselves as at an equal authority or more with God. But we cannot do that. If we deny inerrancy, we're saying that we know more than God. We think we are smarter than God. We think we are better than God. But that is not the position we need to hold. And that we shouldn't hold. And so that's one of the first reasons why we need to affirm inerrancy. And that is it connects back to the attributes and character of God. God doesn't lie. God speaks the truth. And God is sovereign and authoritative. And the second reason is, it's going to be my last reason. I just need to give you two reasons. And hopefully that will be enough for you to convince you why we need to affirm inerrancy of scripture. And the second reason is, is Jesus' view of scripture. Jesus' Jesus's view of scripture. You see, Jesus had a very high esteem, a very, very high esteem for the Old Testament scripture. And Jesus explained the Old Testament a lot. He explained the Old Testament in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, uh, you know, to say that all the scriptures in the Old Testament ultimately connect back to him. He says that the Old Testament, the laws and the prophets must be fulfilled in Jesus. He did not come to destroy or to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus said that the scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. Jesus explained that the writings of, the, of Moses and the law in John chapter 5, verses 45 to 47, is ultimately points to him. You see, he was telling the Pharisees or the religious leaders about some of the issues about their perspective of the Old Testament. And so he says in John chapter 5, verses 45 to 47, he says, Do not think that I will come, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, Jesus was telling these, talking to the Pharisees the religious leaders who were accusing Jesus and trying to give Jesus a hard time. Jesus affirms that God's word is truth. And I just quoted that in John 17, 17. And Jesus condemned the Pharisees for leaving the commandment of God and and they were holding on to the tradition of men that were not of scripture. So we need to remember that Jesus had a very high esteem for the Old Testament. And then another thing is that Jesus Jesus, he quoted from the Old Testament a lot. And I don't need to say much about that. He, when you read the Gospels, he actually quoted the Old Testament a lot, which shows that he has a very high esteem, high esteem of Scripture. For instance, he, in, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, you, you may remember that Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, and specifically he quoted the book of Deuteronomy during his temptation. And Jesus... He quoted Isaiah 61 when he was reading the scriptures in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. And Jesus frequently said this was to fulfill what was written in the prophets or it is written to settle a theological dispute. He frequently said that. He said to the Pharisees, he said to people, it was written, it was written, it was written. And he was calling the Old Testament. And Jesus quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, regarding the great commandment. What is the greatest commandment? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. 
And Jesus frequently used real characters in real events. And when I say real, I mean they were literal and historical people from the Old Testament to teach a lesson to his contemporaries. You know, he talked about Jonah, the queen of Sheba in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. He talked about Noah, historical Noah, the real Noah, the flood events in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 39. He quoted David in Matthew 20, chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. He quoted Solomon in Matthew chapter 6, verses 28 to 29. He quoted Daniel in Matthew chapter 24, verse 25. And you may, have, you may have just heard me say, you know, quoting Matthew a lot, right? You know, when you actually read the Gospel of Matthew, he frequently quotes from the Old Testament because when he wrote the, when Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he was, he was trying to convince the Jewish audience, you know, Matthew, who wrote to the Jewish audience to convince them to believe in Jesus. And also like, you know, in John chapter 8, verse 40, 58, Jesus, Jesus quoted Abraham. In Genesis. So, is it possible for us to disagree with Jesus' view on Scripture? You see, most people, most critics would not even dispute on Jesus' view on Scripture. You see, if Jesus was wrong about the Old Testament, then he would not have been God because he erred. He erred. And if he did err, then our theology about Christ and our theology about our salvation will be completely gone. He would not be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. We would lose the gospel altogether if Jesus were wrong about the Old Testament. And so when Jesus talked about the scripture, he was talking about everything in the Old Testament. And I'm very thankful you know, that you know, John MacArthur held a summit on biblical inerrancy back in 2015. You see, the issue of inerrancy of scripture has, you know, uh, I think it was thought to be settled back, you know, in 1979, I believe, around give or take, when the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy was written and signed. But I fear that even 40 years later from that, from that time, I fear that many churches are steering away from this doctrine. You can go to different churches' statement of faith. And you'll most likely see that these churches may believe in the, in the inspiration of scripture, but they don't state inerrancy or a description of that nature. And so we need to be cautious as Christians to not steer away from this important truth and the doctrines of the inerrancy of scripture. We must affirm it. Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture is true. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so as we have learned, there are necessary reasons to affirm inerrancy. And I don't, and I don't, I don't, think, I don't think you need to believe in, in the inerrancy of Scripture in order to, to be saved or, or in order to go to heaven or to have salvation. But, however, I say that with a grain of salt, However, denying biblical inerrancy, now this is very serious. If you denying inerrancy of scripture could, it could lead you to theological disasters, bad hermeneutics, and negative spiritual consequences, which might eventually lead you to theological liberalism and thus eventually denying the faith. 
This is a very serious stuff. And so I hope you have been challenged, encouraged, and helped by this episode. And if so, if you have been helped, if you've been challenged, if you've been encouraged, then please leave a rating or review and share it with others. And so, I, as a, again, I want to thank you for listening. Talk to you next time. Peace.